Computer. And we are live, guys. What's up? This is Ryan Mullins, uh, CEO and co-founder of Aglet, and uh, we're here on the Sneakers to the Metaverse podcast, talking to uh, some great minds, uh, great builders, technologists, founders, entrepreneurs, all that good stuff. People who are really uh, pushing things forward in the spatial internet space, um, but also really exploring technologies that are going to change certain industries. Um, one industry in particular that we're going to chat a little bit about today is the film industry, uh, as well as the gaming industry and also the graphics industry. And I'm on with a good friend of mine, super talented guy, uh, great business mind as well, strategist, creative director from Territory Studios, Mr. David Sheldon Hicks. Welcome to uh, Sneakers to the Metaverse, my friend. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. It's very weird being recorded. I normally just have very informal chats with you as a friend. So really which are usually podcasts themselves, like most of our conversations. Yeah, we'll keep it pleasant. Okay. We'll keep it pleasant. Um, but uh, yeah, so thanks for coming on. So uh, I know a lot of you that are listening to this that know me well are aware that kind of one of my first, well, one of my first dreams, not kind of, my first dream really was to be a director. Um, that's one of the things that I you know, that's kind of my origin story, I guess. Um, so in the kind of superhuman genre, tell us a little bit about your, uh, your origin story. Um, and uh, so, or I guess maybe better to start off, like what is territory? Okay. Uh, what is territory? I, I, I prefer my origin story. I, I, I feel less Let's do the word. Hey, you do, you're the superhero. Here. You're... <laughs> well, maybe the, maybe the origin story then feeds into um, what territory is or is becoming or has, has been. Um, so I guess I've always been, I was always doodling as a kid, you know, I was always drawing and being creative. I knew that was there, but I always had the, like the logical side of my brain worked as well. And I always felt that I felt, I felt that at school and kind of growing up, there was always this kind of equal balance between logic and creative. Um, mm. and, and I, I guess I wrestled with that in my younger years, um, and kind of also feeling parental kind of pressure to kind of then, you know, use that and go and be an architect or something. Um, but I was just so, I mean, I was, you know, growing up in the 1980s, I was just exposed to all of this, you know, amazing cultural material really. And, um, you know, anything from Japanese animation. So, you know, I remember seeing, you know, um, Katsuhiro Otomo films and Studio Ghibli and all sorts of stuff quite young because we were lucky in the UK to have Channel 4 and they would they would really open your eyes up to a lot of different animation styles out there so we had that then we had something called Rolf's Cartoon Club which was um, Rolf Harris explaining to kids how animation was made mm. um, and that completely hooked me in as well um, and so I, me and a group of friends were always just kind of trying to figure out how to do animation, animatronics. You know, I was fascinated by Jim Henson's Creature Workshop. I would save up all my pocket money and, and kind of paper round money and um, go off to London and buy, you know, the latest book out from Industrial Light and Magic all about, you know, making the original Star Wars films and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I was encaptured by uh, the whole magic of movie making, I think, um, and especially animation design making doing and making that was that was definitely my thing um, and I could see that going down that route would be this hopefully this 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 means to um 
kind of joining up logic and engineering and then and then creativity and craft mm. and all of that sort of thing so that was starting to feel good but damn I lived in the UK kind of pretty much you know um brought up by a single mum on a on a you know in, in the middle of deepest darkest Essex we weren't really connected to the film industry in the UK let alone um in the US where it all seemed like everything was going on um so I had to kind of find my own route. My own route really was um, uh, being introduced to graphic design, not really knowing what graphic design was and um, really just getting excited by that and thinking, oh, I don't have to become an architect. I can actually, I can do projects with a far quicker turnaround. Um, and it was really exciting to me. But knew that I needed to make graphic design move, knew that I needed to make it animate. So I went to Portsmouth Uni and studied graphic design, but just just bullied my teachers into always letting me make it move and tell stories in some way. Mm. Um, and then when I came out of uni, ended up going into music videos. And kind of it all kind of grew from there. So I jumped around between all sorts of things. I got to work on music videos first, and then I very um, fortunately landed a, landed a role as a motion graphics designer on um, Casino Royale the first kind of Daniel Craig uh, yeah. Bond movie. And that just got me into this bug of, of creating screen graphics, creating computer interfaces for films. And then fortunately that team then took me on to the Dark Knight movies. So um, I had this real incredible introduction into the film industry. That almost burnt me out. So I, so I then went on <laughs> to, um, to, working, to working games and not knowing much about games, you know, I play a lot of games, but um, really didn't think about the industry and didn't really know much about Call of Duty uh, and ended up working on Modern Warfare 2 and all the cutscenes mm. on a whole load of different, you know, gaming platforms. Um, and, you know, in hindsight, realised, you know, what, what an incredible run and an opportunity kind of going from, you know, working on cool music videos with Led Zeppelin and lots of different people to then to then going on to James Bond and Batman and Christopher yeah, yeah. Nolan. And then, you know, so it's, it, it was an incredible run. And I just thought, how do I, you know, how do I progress this on? How does, what do I do now? Um, I was kind of freelancing around and knew that, you know, sooner or later family was going to come calling. I was going to grow up and, and mm. I needed to think, kind of consider things beyond that. And I'd worked at loads of different agencies that I'd respected, lots of different creative studios that I just thought, oh, that's really cool about them, but they don't do this and that company does this. So it's just, it's just time to do it myself and do it with some people that I really respect. And um, I was working at an agency called Fold7 and we just had a shared ethos really around, you know, hard work, doing what you care about, being passionate about what you do. Um, and and really mixing this kind of tech engineering with with all out creativity really um, and storytelling you know storytelling so territory studio set up in 2010 um, just after the banking crash really um, and we always knew that um, we wanted to be uh, well I certainly wanted to be a motion graphics and and making design move and beyond that I hadn't really considered it and I didn't really have the preconception that it would be for films. I just thought, you know, I lucked out as a freelancer, but that's never, you know, why, why would they now use me? But after about a year having set territory up and getting things going, we had a phone call from Ridley Scott's team um, on Prometheus to, to join them for graphics. Um, and really that, you know, that was one of the kind of key springboards for us building out, doing, you know, holograms for films, but also doing a lot of work on computer games and working with tech brands. 
Um, and it's just grown and grown and grown. And it's grown towards, you know, f- future visioning, future visioning for brands, um, talking about the future and using that as narrative storytelling moments, technology moments in films, bringing graphic design to, and motion design to computer games, storytelling to computer games. Um, and there's all these wonderful interconnections that's going on at the studio. So we have, what I feel comfortable around is we have these series of focuses and we are specialists and, and to the outside world, it might feel like we are actually generous, but I would say we're, we just have five or six really great specialisms that we really deep dive into. We feel really confident about. Um, and, and so, you know, when things like COVID hit, some of them, some of them get affected, but other ones don't. And we kind of, you know, reallocate focus and energy into those things. And it's, it's a strategy that's worked really well for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we're just figuring out now how that continues to grow and develop and, and what yeah. that maps to really. Yeah. And for those of you who, um, <clears throat> who, who aren't aware of territory's work. So 2010, it gets kicked off. And since 2010, I mean, I think there's, I don't know, there, there might be a couple films you guys have heard of, uh, that, that territories worked on, um, like Blade Runner, you know, the 2049, um, the Watchmen show, um, there's a movie called the Martian, maybe you've heard of, or guardians of the galaxy or ex machina, or, um, I mean, I could just keep going. There's Prometheus zero dark 30. I mean, there's just some of the movies that you guys did Ready Player One as well, right? Yeah, yeah, Ready Player One. There's that probably a bunch special. of other stuff that I'm going to get you in trouble on um, yeah. with NDAs. But, uh, you know, the Ready Player One is kind of an interesting launch point because, um, <clears throat> you know, the, the name of the podcast, Sneakers from Sneakers to the Metaverse, and and you mentioned COVID there. And I think one of the things that, if there's anything good about COVID, <laughs> um, one of the things that is good about it is that, it, it really accelerated a number of trends that, you know, I think if no COVID, a lot of these things that are happening now probably would have, you know, maybe it would have been five or six years down the line that a lot of this stuff really started to, to scale out and become at least more normal. Um, and, but then with COVID, you know, like I did a book, a book interview the other day, like in Teo, um, interviewing the founder of Reebok, like in a VR environment, um, or just like, you know, I mean, we probably would have this podcast anyway on, on, on Zoom or whatever it would be like if there was no COVID. But what COVID did really was like accelerate and augment a number of, a number of trends that were sort of already in place or at least underway. Yeah. Um, and so this idea of the metaverse um, is, you know, this isn't a new idea. This is like, you know, this is a mid 90s concept from Snow Crash. Uh, you know, Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash. And there's a paper, I think it's even written in like the late 80s, maybe it's the early 90s. Uh, great paper. It's by a guy named Mark Weiser. It's called Ubiquitous Computing. Um, and he also basically outlines something similar to like a spatial internet um, where, you know, the internet or digital kind of disappears and just becomes part of the background, like oxygen or electricity. Um, and so Ready Player One is, is an interesting one because. I think when people when people imagine what the metaverse is, um, they often go to Ready Player One as kind of you know the oasis being uh, this virtual world in which you kind of have a second life. Yeah. Um, and you know there are there are assets that you're collecting. There are skins. There's an avatar. 
There's money in that game. There's, it's a persistent world that keeps going. It's also a social network. You know, there are brand building, there's business. So it's all, it's just literally this mirror world of the real world. Um, and I think Ready Player One is really cemented in, for better or worse, I actually think maybe for worse, um, because I don't think that's what the metaverse is. Um, maybe, what was it like, you know, did any of the, any of your interest in, in the next wave of, of technology, the next wave of the internet for Ready Player One, was that like a, like a goat project for you? Like, just because it's, it kind of so much encompasses, it seems like all your interests, you know, cause it's, you know, we were talking about Steve Jobs before we actually started recording. And like, I remember that, you know, Steve Jobs was very much a believer and embodied that kind of liberal arts humanist side coupled with the tech side, whether he was a developer or not is irrelevant, but like bringing and fusing those two things together. And for me, Ready Player One is like a great example of this movement and visualizing a movement towards something like a metaverse or the spatial internet or the next phase. Um, I mean, that's not really so much a direct question as more like opening up a space to talk about you know, some of these things that we could then later move into like, you know, Unreal and Unity and... Yeah. You know. So, uh, I mean, it's, it is, I mean, it's definitely fascinating, isn't it? I, I, it's fun. I didn't, I mean, I, I really, I didn't, I, I didn't get too caught up in thinking whether Ready Player One at the time was making, you know, an accurate commentary on mm. where we might be headed. Um we were, I think we were also working on Blade Runner. There was some crossover with Blade Runner maybe. And that felt closer actually to uh, <laughs> being an accurate commentary on where we were headed. Um, but for me, Ready Player One, you know, it was kind of overshadowed by the fact that we were working with Spielberg and right. like everything else went out, all other thinking went out the window. Um, uh, and really, and really, you know, it was, it was Spielberg, but it was Spielberg kind of referencing an era that was so special to me and then it was it was getting to do work at just the highest level you know there's a it's a director that just really enables you to do your best work mm. that's the only way that I can describe him um and and that team that whole team Roger on visual effects and um Adam Stockhausen the production designer they're just they're just incredible talents and you sit there listening and, and learning, you know, huge amounts from them. But most of it, most of the learning for me was around storytelling. You know, I was, I was mm. listening, seeing notes from Stephen come through and, and just that effective um, means to entertaining audiences. Um, so his objective is not really, you know, to make a future prediction on where spatial computing is headed. Um, and you know, I'm sure he's aware of Snow Crash and everything else. But um, you know, really, his motivation was telling great stories and 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 entertaining audiences, and and that that was where my head was at the mm. time. When you look back on it and you post-rationalize what you've done, there's a lot of things going on in the back of your head um, that inform all of the work, and you suddenly realize what was going on in the background, kind of the you know, uh, the the underlying thinking that was going on there that I think becomes so instinctive to us as a studio that we don't always appreciate mm. that that's actually what's happening there too. And that's why we're brought into the conversation. It becomes second nature to us. But spatial computing 
is probably the paradigm shift in which I built an entire studio. Yeah. Like that, 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 that is the dream. That is the, and it, and it, and it, and it really is as big as Gutenberg's Bible. It, it really is that kind of momentous occasion. And when we are all used to accustomed to screens, having a frame, having a boundary, um, and you know, if the the notion of ubiquitous computing is going to come through, there's going to be this merging of spatial, spatial design, narrative design. There's so many different rhythms and 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 lenses of looking at the world that all kind of converge at one point. Um, and I just kind of want to be a part of that. That is so incredibly exciting to me, and it and it and it it's already starting. You know, we're seeing it with with our phones and adding a digital layer over over reality. But mm-hmm. if you can get it into a form factor that is, you know, these glasses on the on my face or just on our eyeballs, then it's going to change absolutely everything. In the same way that you know, kind of COVID is now, it's changing our relationship to the world, the relationship to each other economies cultural socio-economic you know it's just it just runs through everything um and i i kind of get gushy about this stuff because i i'm actually seeing companies now working on these problems at a fundamental level like hardware software um it's coming through and it's surprising how it's surprising how close it is and for me as a designer, as a creative, you know, when, when Territory set up, we talked about this notion that um, we like the idea of being like the Bauhaus. Like, it doesn't really matter what the final execution is. It's just that we've got great creative and technological problem solvers that we can bring great minds together and, and we'll, we'll kind of take anything on. And, and I think this is one of those moments as it starts to come through that we're going to, you know, be able to, as creatives, we'll be... And as, as problem solvers, we'll, we'll have these brand new challenges that will liberate us in ways that I think we've, we've not seen in, in a, you know, maybe a hundred years. Yeah. I can't, I can't remember who, actually, I think it was a cold email that I sent you actually when we first, uh, when we, when we first met, actually, it was like, just because I'm a, I'm a film nerd and like, like, I just sort of saw I can't remember what movie it was. Was it? It may have been. It might have been Guardians of the Galaxy, if I remember correctly, when you got in touch. I think, yeah, it was one of those. And I, I was just like, whoever did this is just fucking brilliant. Like, this is amazing. And I, I no, you know what it was? It was, I think it was Ex Machina. That sounds right. That sounds I right. I think it was Ex Machina. You, I remember you referencing Blue Book. Um, that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Because, that's exactly what it is. So, yeah. So I actually just re- figured out like, Oh, okay. Territory studios worked on that because you guys built a blue book website. Yeah. Well, I, well, I mean, we, we built, we built the illusion of it. I mean, I mean, <laughs> and I love the website. You give us design. far too much credit. Yeah. We did. Yeah. And we, I love the site and I just wrote you this message and I was like, dude, I love what you guys are doing. Um, huge fan of your work. Uh, you know, I've got this small little startup I'm building called Alipo, and you know, we're doing a. I'm trying to ask, like, who's the? You know, the question I'm asking is, who is the Steven Spielberg of like this next phase of storytelling, like where we're going? And my whole thing was, 
the device on which we're building most of our content now is this phone. And there's all this technology that's like hidden underneath this thing that most create creatives aren't getting access to. Like, why isn't there a publishing, self-publishing platform that gives you access to the location features of the phone? Or why isn't, you know, or gives you access to like APIs? Like, why can't I have a story in which it requires me to get from A to B and I actually have to take an Uber like from A to B in order to access, you know, so like the, basically the world becomes the, the scene or the, the set. Yeah. Um, and you're able to use all these technologies. So that like, it was very early in, in Alipo's days, but that's where I was trying to go with it was asking these questions about, and I was probably 15 years too early, but like asking questions about, okay, when maybe it's the phone is really like it was for the Apple watch um, in the, you know, even I was going to say the early days, it was like five years ago, but like only five years ago did the watch require like the phone to be its, its kind of, you know, local computational resource. Now it's achieved its independence a little bit, but then you start thinking, okay. And, you know, next year, even, or uh, the next, the next decade, when these, these things like you and I are wearing glasses, audience can't see that, I guess, but when those are now not like magic leap with this, you know, this kind of silly thing that was like strapped to the, the eyewear, the, the advantage Apple has and hardware companies have is like they already have the phones. The phone will be what powers um, the glasses. And now if you've got glasses, you've got your AirPods in and you've got this watch and now you start thinking, hmm, now I've got like all of reality to use as a canvas to tell a completely new kind of story. Yeah. Now the world, and now as I'm walking around in the world, I can start seeing, you know, like imagine like a, I don't know, like the Goonies retold in, you know, in that world where I've got sloth running at me or like the Fratellis. And, you know, it's like that whole, the world just becomes yeah. the environment. And I, I actually don't think we're too far off from watching Netflix. And, you know, like if it's, if it is Ex Machina or something and, and I'm watching Netflix and I pause it and throw on some VR glasses and actually enter that scene. Like, I don't think we're that far off from that kind of a thing. Like just looking at like the Mandalorian and even jungle book or whatever. I, like, I don't think that's even five years off from being, I don't, I don't feel like every movie is going to have that, but I do think there probably will be a movie just like Bender snatch or whatever it was from black mirror that had like a choose your own adventure thing. There probably will be some kind of film that comes out that like tests this feature. Yeah. Um, probably will be a James Cameron film. <laughs> since he seems to always be pushing the boundaries of uh, this kind of stuff. So I just thought that was really interesting. Like the first time that we connected was really over story. It was really about storytelling yeah, and using technology to create new kinds of emotions, new forms of entertainment and new ways to connect to people to tell, you know, really great stories. And one of the great things about science fiction, I think is, I often look at Aglet and like what I'm building at the company on life is I use science fiction uh, prototyping almost to imagine future scenarios that are enabled by technology. Yeah. And that's sort of this science, science fiction prototype. And then I then rewind back to the beginning of the movie. And I think, all right, in order to make that happen, what do I need? 
what's the technology stack of that to make it happen? You know, what's right. the team I need to do that? What's the audience and the market and all this other stuff? So for me, right. science fiction, storytelling and all these things actually, it's, it, and I'm just thinking of like how you built the company, if, if any of that had an impact on the business that you built, not just yeah, on completely, the- Yeah, completely, completely. I mean, um, it often surprises me. I mean, what you've just described there, it, it feels like so many businesses do this now. You know, they kind of almost create their own little mini sci-fi film mm. um, around, you know, what, what, does, what does the ideal future look like for us and our customers? And then backtrack from that. And we often get involved in those projects. You know, we're often working with big tech companies or even, you know, even fashion labels or whoever it might be to just set out this vision, you know, this 10, 15, 20 year vision, maybe nearer than that. Um, because there's so many exciting things that you can do to, um, you know, we're all mapping against potential new changes, shifts. I don't think anyone saw COVID coming, but, you know, that kind of, that movement in digital and then now this, this movement towards digital and physical overlay, um, it's, it's something that's going to affect us all. We're all, we're all setting out our stalls as to how we believe we're going to work with that. Um, and, and I love it. I love that entertainment is used as a reference point for technology. It's sometimes really bizarre for me because I'm just thinking, if you knew the motivations for this, and maybe they are aligned, maybe they are, because ultimately we're just trying to entertain as many people as possible. We're trying to make the use of that technology in the film, you know, just really part of the storytelling. And maybe hmm. on, a, on an emotional level, you know, in the real world, that is what people want. You know, they just want pleasurable interactions and and things to just just you know for their for their lives to become that that kind of mini fantasy a little bit so yeah. that's when you know that's when the magic comes through yeah so may, may, maybe they are aligned but I, I find it very strange I, I always think that we should be um I don't know just just a little bit more more informed and um <laughs> ser serious I guess serious yeah. a bit more serious about what we do but actually maybe there's maybe there's nothing wrong with just enjoying it and 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 being playful with it all maybe that's maybe that's the perfect way to approach it i, I think i mean well this is that's that's an interesting segue this is something i've been <clears throat> it's something i've been reading about lately uh quite a lot actually is like play um, and like the difference between play and a game. Um, and, you know, it, it's, I mean, there's a, a number of really interesting books on this, like from, you know, like socio-political interpretations of play or even like, you know, evolutionary uh, uh, lenses that you can look at of like, like every, basically every species plays. Um, and, and then looking at the different values that are placed on play as if like play isn't serious or, you know, play is like a toy. And why I think it's important is because I have a, <clears throat> I have a, um, like a, a, a pitch method that I use a lot, which is I often will select various people that I want to pitch to. And I know they will never ever use the product that I'm, I'm talking about. And so if I pitch it and they laugh at me, that's when I know I'm onto something. Um, because how they typically view it as is, oh, that's just a toy. Like that's just play. Um, and I think if you look at most of the, the biggest breakthroughs 
in consumer products, you know, in, in technology, it's typically viewed from like the, the dominant mental model as like not being serious or being a toy, like VR. It's a bunch of like, you know, smelly hackers in the garage that are like picking parts off the shelf and ordering shit to like build this thing. That's, Oh, it's not, it's nothing serious. Nobody's going to wear that giant thing on their face. You know, now it's one of the core uh, pieces of hardware of, you know, the future of film and or entertainment and maybe sports even, right? Yeah. Or as Facebook seems to think, social. Um, or if you think drones, it's like, oh, that's not serious. You know, like who who wants to build this thing and what are you going to do with that? It's a toy. And it's like, oh, now it might be a core part of the supply chain of, you know, delivery and, you know, it's enabled uh, new kinds of uh, helping in filmmaking. It's, uh, you know, it's mapping the world for us. So, uh, you know, Google Street View and everything. So typically when anyone says that's a toy or it's not serious, that's when I'm like, this is serious. <laughs> I'm, I'm on to something. Same thing with what I'm building now, like digital sneakers. It's like, I call it the 42 test, right? It's the, the, the deep thought experiment, which is like, if you're older than 42, you're probably going to be either sickened or in a complete state of cognitive dissonance when I describe what I'm building. It's like somebody paid 800 bucks for a virtual sneaker. Like, how does that make sense? Like, I, that makes zero sense to me. And so what you realize very quickly is that there is what, what we're talking about is very much like a philosophical thesis about where value is placed. Value is placed on the real world. Um, and any imaginative fictional scenario or a virtual world or a non-real thing is supposed to be not serious or you know less real or something like that. You know what I mean? And I think with, with each generation, you kind of get one generation that doesn't think something is real that the other generation seems to think is really important. And as, and as we kind of progress through, it seems to me that where we are now is you have the old parents that are like, why are the kids spending all this time and this money in these games? My son's got a girlfriend in Fortnite or what, you know what I mean? Like that doesn't make any sense. It's like, well, just 10 years ago or 15 years ago, if you met your wife or your girlfriend online, you were either like a giant loser or like a pervert, you know, <laughs> now you don't meet them online. You're like a loser or a pervert, you know? So it's like, you, just, you just, you keep evolving and evolving and these different values start to fluctuate. And I think, I don't know. I don't know if this is, I, just... think, I think we have, I think we have these, um, these really interesting self images because I think you're right. I think there is a generational shift there. I, I suspect you're a similar age to me, Ryan, but um, you know, I remember, I remember the computers coming in, you know, I remember discovering those and, and they were discovered, you know, I couldn't, uh, my parents didn't get me a Sega Mega Drive. Uh, although I really wanted one, I got a Commodore 64. Um, and with a Commodore 64, you get this tape drive, but you also get to learn like basic and machine programming. Um, so I kind of got into that at a very early stage. So I kind of understood, understood how things were put together in that space and kind of saw digital for what it was, you know, at those very early stages. And then remember getting my first dial-up modem and, you know, um, was it Mosaic that gave you the first kind of pictures and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Um, and just, just appreciating 
how this kind of all builds and develops and seeing that happen over time. Um, I remember when, you know, Yahoo was a bigger thing than Google, um, you know. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just, just how things can change. And we talk about, you know, digital and play and that being kind of looked down upon by a certain segment, but we think nothing of everything financial living digitally mm. now. You know, and that, that's yeah. been a massive shift to go from the gold standard and, and uh, you know, hard currency to just everything everything existing financially digitally yeah um so if our currency is there why wouldn't you know why wouldn't everything else mm-hmm. um and our digital personas are you know a shrunk down version of a hollywood celebrities you know um presence globally mm-hmm. um and we're all we're all managing that and tweaking it and thinking about how we're how we're seen in the digital world it's it has as much relevance as as the physical one yeah so i mean I, you know and that is kind of getting all to the metaverse and digital doubles and all the rest of it but right it's just also relevant it's also relevant in the same way that you know if you got published in a magazine many years ago it was you know it's kind of that it's that same it's it's it you're not purely expressed through your physical self it's how your mind lives on through the books that you publish and and you know it's just it's just a, another medium yeah um and it but the importance of this medium is it's so fast you know it's so quick it's so global it it's um the immediacy is is um it, it's it's something else and and i think that's that's the exciting bit is it has it still is as much as we might say it hasn't i think it has democratized so many things yeah um, in such a good way you know i i feel very fortunate to live in the time that i do because um somebody from my background where i was from would not have got into the film industry in the same way 10 years prior you know if i'd been that much older i suspect none of this would have happened for me yeah um so i do i feel incredibly fortunate to live in the times that we do and have had access to the things that are there because um it's uh it's liberating it's liberating for all of us we should just grab it you know should yeah. just grab it and, and enjoy it well speaking of that i mean you know i've been reading a lot recently you know i mean you know this one of my favorite uh directors if not my favorite director um, of all time is, is Christopher Nolan. And, uh, you know, you, you mentioned after, uh, Casino Royale, you, you went to work on a, on a Nolan film, <clears throat> the dark Knight or dark Knight rises. Was it? Um, I uh, know not rises. I'm not taking credit for that. Okay. No. Um, <laughs> um, but you know, so he just releases uh, tenant and I think it just crossed 300 million, um, was the announcement, which, Sounds like a lot of money, but a two hundred million dollar budget, which you know, this is, you know, if if it were a non COVID world and that that movie had grossed to date three hundred million, it would be like basically like Wally Fister's Transcendence movie that you know was at least from a box office perspective. I actually liked the movie, but it was a deemed a massive disappointment. And so obviously, the reason for the revenue or lack of uh, for what they wanted is that people aren't going to the movie theaters. Um, uh, given uh, given the the pandemic, um, and so uh, where I'm going with this is speaking of like opportunities and a great time to be alive. Like on the one hand, you could look at the current state of Hollywood um, and the future of the film industry 
and and be like, it seems like there's a lot of problems right now. Um, on the other hand, really great opportunity um, in many ways. And um, I think when you look at some of the stuff that you and I were talking about somewhat recently on like what we saw with the man, how the Mandalorian was made um, and how game engines, I mean, they've always kind of been there in some sense, but like now really creating the, these worlds in which the actors live in like this giant dome and act in. It's not just like a screen in the background that's then brushed up later in post, but like you're literally in the environment, a digital environment, like, and now it's not the genius of, can I get the shot as a director? It's like the genius of which shot do I pick? Uh, because now you can just throw on the VR glasses and like literally select like whatever shot I want. So I think it'd be an interesting transition mentioning Hollywood, like where do you see given COVID and given, you know, the way that that game engines and gaming and, and metaverse and all this stuff are coming into play? Like, where do you see filmmaking uh, going and being impacted by, by this stuff? Yeah, I think, so I think, so filmmaking, I think the reason that filmmaking attracted me was just um, obviously storytelling, but once you're in there, you just realize it's this melting pot of technological innovators at the highest level, like really, really pushing, meeting traditional craftspeople that just have this wonderful legacy and history. And it's constantly, you know, hitting. It's technological innovation versus craft and tradition and, and just, you know, just some wonderful things, you know, just, just the art of writing a script. Mm. You know, just thinking about that for a second, just pulling, pulling words together and shaping worlds and shaping stories. That, I mean, that is, that's, that's an incredible talent and skill. So, so just witnessing that either from inside or from afar is, has just been, just been incredible. And, and the film world is just presented with that yet again. Um, and they've been here before, and I think they've probably forgotten that they've been here before, but they've been here hundreds of times. Mm. You know, the introduction of sound, the introduction of colour, right. the introduction of visual effects, you know, you, you know, different movements through unions. It, it's, this is not new. This yeah. is not new. The industry has seen many shifts and changes, and it's always better for it. So I'm not, you know, I'm not concerned there. The, the exciting thing for me and Territory is we've been working with a director who I won't name because I'm not sure if it is delicate, but we've, he, I would say he's at the, the forefront of avant-garde storytelling and, and always pushing technology. Um, and we've been working with him on virtual production for, a, for a, uh, a film that will be out on Netflix. And it's, it is an amazing technology and it's just right for certain things. It's not going to change the entire industry. We're not, you know, virtual production, using LEDs, lighting with LEDs, replacing backgrounds with LEDs only makes sense sometimes. You know, it's not, it's not going to be a, you know, I think the Mandalorian is a great example that, you know, it, it used it in a clever way and I think moved on the technology and the art form. But I think that everyday filmmaking, you can still build sets. You know, right. it's still yeah. it's still cheaper to build sets. Actors still like to interact with things. You know, mm -hmm. they still like to touch a surface and and um, 
work mm. with props and 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 immerse themselves in the environment. So I think that's still the case. But what it does have an edge over in certain cases is green screen because suddenly you're not imagining what that green screen will be when it's replaced in post. It's there live mm -hmm. in front of you. And say, for instance, I don't know, a spaceship rushing through space and kind of things flying past it instead of green out the window, you can have all that content and LED and it's there, you know, and the, the actors getting to respond to it and, and feel like they're, they're in there and it just aids the performance as the performance and it helps everyone creatively on set. So, so it's a, it's a fantastic tool. It is really a more modern day version of rear projection, you know, mm -hmm. for all of its, um, and Unreal is a, is a fantastic technology and, and it's getting to a point now. Well, the, the beautiful thing for me, because we, we span, we span a couple of different in industries that use real time technologies, you know, feature film is using it for virtual production and, um, I'm having some fantastic chats with people in art department because I think it it it's seen you know maybe assumed that it's the domain of visual effects, but it, I would say it's it's actually more art department because it's the design of worlds and that design of worlds has historically always been done by art department. Now there'll need to be some updates to their tools and skill set, but just you know that skill around considering human proportion and how we navigate an environment and what that says about storytelling and the research around, you know, various different um, materials and, you know, what that what that does to storytelling, all of that deeper thinking. It's been with the art department for, you know, decades, centuries, and 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 it's a wonderful art form. So they should just embrace that. They should just embrace yeah. that and own it. And 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 I think they will. I think they will. I think it's taking time, but it it will get there. Um, and so, but it also represents this opportunity for art department and visual effects to connect more, which is really exciting for me because we've always spanned the two in very different ways. But just to see the the connection of that through this this new um, technique is is um, it's a real creative opportunity, actually. Yeah. Um, but I, I'd say virtual production is there. But what the, what that means is more people are using real time technology. So when I'm working on a computer game, I might have the same team that's also working on a feature film that's also working on a brand experiential activation um, that's also maybe working on a, a futuristic interface for a new car, you know. Mm. Um, we span all of those things and, and suddenly the technology is kind of threaded, it's similar technology threaded throughout. But the most liberating part of all of it is that we're not waiting around for rendering. You know, suddenly we can fail fast more we can see the results are incorrect. And so we can make the work better. So that feedback loop speeding up again. And that's that, you know, that's where technology really liberates that. And when I kind of going back to spatial computing and, and, and shifting things for creatives, I think, I think real time tech does that again. You know, if I think about Ansel Adams, you know, that, that work is really a response to, um, you know, plate photography and real high depth of field, you think about impressionists and being affected by photography coming through and responding to that. You know, it suddenly wasn't important to represent reality. There could be a creative interpretation of it. And 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 I, and I think kind of un, unreal and other real-time technologies are going to cause that question again for storytellers and creatives, which mm -hmm. is, you know, is is this, you know, it's, it's not is this a relevant technology uh, for telling a story? It's just thinking how we might tell stories differently. 
Um, and so could a film director be directing something with game engine that would turn out to be a VR game or an AR game in the real world? Or, you know, mm -hmm. I think suddenly theater directors are very relevant because all of this content could play out in the round. Yeah. Um, you're suddenly not concentrating people's perspective down one camera. You're not forcing their, their view in, into a particular framing. Suddenly the audience can see everything. Yep. because they can move around within that narrative space. Yep. Um, so it's a very different creative skill set coming through. So I'm really excited that hopefully, you know, as some of these things start to come through, you might get a theatre director working with an architect, working with a creative technologist to come up with something that um, isn't your standardised format. And I think that was what, you know, with Brandersnatch and others that are kind of playing around with the format, this kind of semi-grey area of interaction versus narrative linear it's a really interesting space and you can't go too far you can't be 50 50 interactive 50 50 because uh, it just it's just this weird mix but if you kind of just cross over 10 percent either way you get you get some you know some quite powerful moments yeah um so i i, I want to play around with that more what are you grabbing I just grabbed this book. Um, this I don't know if you've heard of this, uh, the Stephen Johnson book, Everything Bad is Good for You. Um, I'm writing that down. He has this, um, he has this really great part in the book. I don't think I remember the exact page number, but it's um, he's basically talking about uh, games, and he does the he has this um, he imagines he imagines a scenario in which what if um, let me see if I can find it real quick. What if, what if books came after games? Like, like what, what if Ooh. imagine a, a weird thought experiment in which games actually preceded books and well, things would be so different. Yeah, and, and like, well, from like one perspective, like just how lame it would be. <laughs> like, would they even work? You know, you know what I mean? Like if you go from interactivity, uh, you know, um, the, the ability to have actual agency in a, in a world that you can move through, even if it's two-dimensionally and sort of the illusion of you moving uh, in, this, in this space. But like, if you go from that, to a book it just seems like it would be such a such a lame uh but did games did games come before books not computer games well no no yeah i mean like more like i guess it depends on what a game i mean like video games yeah all right yeah. you're defining the rules now yeah let me i am um... Yeah, I mean, that is a really interesting thought experiment. But I think, I think there's lots to play with here. You know, I think there's lots to play with in terms of, of narrative meeting interaction, um, you know, nonlinear meeting linear, and just playing around with that overlap a little bit. I think, I think there's some things there um, that I think are going to be really interesting coming through. Um, yeah. Just think, you know, I, I, mean, I just think about the format of TV. You know, TV is not dead. I've just gone. I hope. Well, I really hope it isn't because I've spent a fortune on a brand new TV. Um, but, <laughs> um, yeah. You know, it's not. It's not dead, and and still, I, I still go to normal terrestrial kind of scheduling. 
just to kind mm. of help me out with my content selection. Right. And I still struggle. I still struggle through the algorithm. Ah, <laughs> uh, so this, um, and especially if I'm having that conversation, you know, with my wife, or what should we watch tonight? We never really can quite decide on something. You need somebody to help you through. And a, and a TV schedule is actually uh, a very direct, linear, comfortable, you know, yeah. way of kind of getting there. It's like, yeah. let's, let's, let's define the parameters for a moment. And if it's, We've well, got these ten options and are all on at the same time. Let's choose one of those. Yeah, feels, feels a little bit easier than trying to define actually, you know, the genre that you're going to go down that night. Yeah, this this idea of bringing together, sort of, I'm paraphrasing it, but like the humanities, liberal arts, the creativity side, and then like the technical side. For me, one of my, much to the, I guess, like the disgust of some of my friends. Who, who's, who are only like kind of foreign films and, you know, this kind of stuff, like, you know, the, the old French auteurs, that kind of stuff. Like my favorite filmmaker was always James Cameron. And, and the reason for that was not because, you know, the, the actual narrative itself was like so amazing or the, you know, that, that it's, an act, it's like an incredible story and the dialogue is so great or whatever. It was never that. For me, it was always the way in like he actually is an, an auteur because of the way that he would combine his personal life, like his, his, his own passions of diving or, you know, his, with like the abyss and, you know, like he, he literally wasn't, didn't he, hasn't he gone deeper than like any human being? So like he himself takes risks. It's like Tom Cruise. I don't know if you've seen some of this shit that he's done in like the mission impossible 30 or whatever we're on now, but like, he's like, drives a mo motorcycle like off a cliff like a, an actual cliff and falls and then throws the shootout it's like he he puts skin in the game james cameron and basically I, I, yeah every, i mean I don't know, the cynic in me just says they're using a film to fund their you know rather extravagant hobbies um, I, i'm sure I'm, that's maybe the case but i think <laughs> like you know if you think of like terminator and even even Avatar, like to a certain extent, you know, that when we because earlier you had mentioned um, the art direction and working with the, you know, the uh, the like the world builders, basically, like the, I guess, pun intended, but like the depths that they went uh, to build an entire ecosystem and like actual species that were, you know, native to that world. And I, I've always found James Cameron to be somebody that is um, for better or worse to some people brings all of these things together, innovations and in technology, sort of the best of what's there today, but pushing things in a direction that will enable, you know, other people to pick up on and, and be able to tell new stories, creating new worlds, imagining new scenarios and how you would maybe behave if you were in a, in a position to be an agent in that. For me, it was always James Cameron, Steven Spielberg as well, just like the amazing, all, all my favorite films are basically like, you know, Spielberg movies and, you know, the, the Spielberg documentary was amazing to kind of give some background on, on him. And um, who, who's like maybe two or three, um, it doesn't have to be filmmakers, but just like from the creative side, two or three people that like really influenced you. Um, Across my career. Yeah. I think um, Daniel Lieberskins. The architect, mm, yeah, you know, deconstructivism and 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 his approach, I found, I still find fascinating. Um, uh, I think, 
you know creatives that kind of that do they kind of sit at that moment of a of some uh, a thinking shifting you mm-hmm. know Carl Jenks kind of did a great job of describing that 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 shift in the way that architects kind of related to form and then you kind of got more modern people like Zaha Hadid and you know um and others kind of stretching that but for me um yeah Leverskin was 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 a really kind of front runner in that that space and made me consider how I how I use graphics and and you know graphic graphics not just being about this pure communication point but also being expressive and making people feel you know is it okay to play with that do you suddenly become an artist if if Mm. if you're making people feel something and it and it I guess that acknowledges my my tension in the work that we do which is you know we're using design but we're using it in entertainment and you need to make people feel something so that gives me licenses as a designer not to think about UX in a screen graphic but to think how can this graphic make somebody feel something Mm -hmm. in in a film that that's that's an interesting challenge so definitely Liebeskin um I think music I mean I'm not going to choose anyone in particular but I think music affects me creatively Mm -hmm. like when I'm when I'm working I will listen to music and it tunes me into something James Gunn on Guardians of the Galaxy did a wonderful thing where when I first read his scripts I'd not I didn't really know much about Guardians of the Galaxy I'm ashamed to say before Mm -hmm. I before I started on the first ever Marvel film that we we began on I don't think Um, many did to be honest no okay so I'm forgiven but (laughs) I just remember the script being incredibly funny, but I also remember him writing in the soundtracks that he was going to use. And it's like, Mm. okay, I know all of these. And I get, suddenly I get the movie more because I understand the soundtrack than I do reading the dialogue and the, you know, Mm. it immediately kind of gets you into a, a reference point that attunes you to everyone else that's reading the same script. Um, and aligns you all creatively so I think that's an incredibly powerful tool for all creatives is that that use of sound in whatever we do mm-hmm. um, it's a it's an emotional connection um, so I think music more generally I'm I'm I well I was um, heavily into jazz and I, I still do, do dive in and dive out but I'm kind of I'm really varied now really really varied you know mm-hmm. anything from like Jeff Beck doing abstract stuff on an electric guitar to you know more poppy modern day stuff. I'm I'm kind of all over the space, so def- definitely yeah. music. Um, what about like in the, like filmmaker, like a director? Or... I mean, I, I've worked with. Fortunately, I've worked with so many of my heroes, like Alex yeah. Garland. You know, on Ex Machina, we were working with him on his first film, and he was so generous, so open, and and you know grounded and just very open to taking on our comments and and working with us so collaboratively it was amazing um Catherine Bigelow was fantastic to work with and was a great ambassador for us um for a period of time and um but you know there's that I, I I struggle there's names that I would I would still like to work with um I mean, there's probably so many and, and not just not just filmmakers, but also production designers and visual effects supervisors that I've always just admired their work from afar. Mm-hmm. But I'm very, very lucky to have worked with and still work with kind of most of the names that yeah. I wanted to. I mean, I didn't even think I was going to work with them. You know, I just admired their films. I just thought they were, you know, they were amazing. Um, I would have loved to have seen Jim Henson working 
Mm. No, I, don't, I would love to have witnessed that. I would love to, I don't know if I would have loved to work with him, but everyone talks about Kubrick who has worked with him and it, within the film industry, if you've worked with Kubrick, whenever you start talking about Kubrick, there's kind of a hush in the room because it, 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 that even th that's such a rare thing, mm. you know, it, to, to meet many people that have worked, that worked with him. And um, I just, just hide him, hold him in high regard. What, what was it about, about Kubrick that um, I think a lot of people, he's one of those guys that has an influence on so many people just beyond film. You know, there, there are a lot of, um, there's a lot of like UX UI designers uh, who are influenced by, by Kubrick. There's a lot of musicians I hear that are, you know, that, that are more on the composing side of things, not just in classical, but like actual, like they're, they're making music and they're, they're influenced by his visual style or whatever. Um, you know, he, he was a pretty avid chess player. Like he seems to, but I think, I guess where I'm going with it is like, you can look at people like Elon Musk or Steve Jobs or Michael, like the greats of certain industries and kind of see here are the qual here are the things that made that person great. And yeah. I think oftentimes with directors, we enjoy their work so much and you're just kind of left with the work and you very rarely, unless you're like a nerd and you want to get into like, why is Hitchcock the master of suspense? And, you know, you kind of have to be a nerd to really explore why these films are um, so amazing and why they're, why they made me feel this way. Mm. And you very often don't get access to like, like what was it about Kubrick or what, what, what is Spielberg actually trying to do? What are his strategies? What, what was it with, with Kubrick you think that was, that made him so great and, and sort of better than, maybe not better than, but he has, he's sort of like one of these gods of film. I, th I think what well, you've outlined, he seems to resonate with other creatives. Yeah. Um, and so I'm, I'm gonna give you an answer that um, acknowledges that I'm a creative. I can see, I appreciate him for the creative talent that was there. Um, and I, I don't know, I don't know if I would respond to his work in the same if I didn't work in the industry that I work in. Mm -hmm. If I, if I was purely talking about being entertained and watching a film yep. um, and not appreciating it for, I know what went into it. Would I have the same appreciation? I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure. It's the same for somebody who might appreciate formula one. You appreciate Formula One because you know what those drivers go through, like the technical mm -hmm. um, excellence that's going on there and what they put their bodies through and kind of driving around those circuits. It's not about raw power. It's, it's it, you know, it's all the other kind of underlying stories that make it mean so much. And I think, I think Kubrick is a bit like that in that you can see the creative control. You can see the, the just uncompromising, like, like he's not, <laughs> he's not settled for anything mm. every single moment there's so many layers so many layers it's so psychological and um in the same way i think nolan kind of achieves with various different films now i think he was in a place and in the point of time where and he kind of epitomized this 
it's so so hard to straddle like out and out art and entertainment at the same time like i feel like so few directors achieve that achieve that balance you know commercial success and and critical success and and is it art house or is it mainstream you know and i think he just he hit all of those yeah you know and and i i i i you know there's something going on there in that brain that is um not mainstream um <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know, I think he must have just looking at that work, you know, not knowing anything. If I didn't know anything about Kubrick, seeing that work, you see the genius in it, but you just think, my word, that that must have been hard to accomplish both for him and for the team. You know, you can see the pain in there. Every single film that we work on is 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 a massive undertaking. Mm. And we often come out of them going, oh, you know, that was so painful. That was that was such a that was such a thing to put yourself through, like no other project. Like the, the bar is so incredibly high with everything. You know, it doesn't matter if it's, um, you know, what the, what the movie is, whether it's a Disney, you know, mainstream kid show or uh, a Nolan movie. It, it's everyone puts everything into it because it's a big thing. And um, it's a big investment. It's a big investment. You want it to be worth something. So for a film industry to work that way, but then go, well, that's just another level above, you know, that, that's just out, outright crazy almost. Um, and I think, I think he sits in that space. Um, yeah. well, it, the, it's genius, really. No, he, I mean, it's, he is. I mean, there, I remember seeing Inception for the first time in the, in the, in the, um, <clears throat> in the movie theater. And, and just, I mean, he, I already, I'm not trying to sound like the guy who I knew him when, but like the really it was memento that kind of like, yeah. okay, this, this guy's brilliant. And then this was back in the day when Netflix, you could actually like order DVDs and you know, the following his first movie uh, was out on the criterion collection. Um, always been a big fan of the criterion ones. And so I ordered following and, and watched it. And when you, when you watch following it's, it's, um, it's such a great, I think it was like a $25,000 budget or something. Yeah. And, and you see a lot of those themes that he's exploring there. It's like this idea of following and, um, you know, like following someone. So it's like, here's this wannabe artist who's like following all these people to try to basically see like how they live. So yeah. there's those questions of like, you know, artistic authenticity and, you know, staying true to your vision. And one one of the things I love about him is that, like you said, art, entertainment, but then also like the big questions, let's call it. You know, he he really, I can't think of another filmmaker that at that level of complexity and budget and scale can weave like quantum mechanics, uh, yeah. you know, uh, different layers of psychology, you know, Escher architecture and, and you know, uh, um, inverted objects and tenant it's like these these sprawling crazily philosophical topics that are entertaining but he always manages maybe not so much in tenant i think but like he always manages to position those in still a kind of heartfelt story like even with interstellar like all the stuff that's going on there is still ultimately a man's relationship with his daughter 
Oh uh, yeah, I mean, I watched Interstellar the other night, and um, it did. I, I, I think I cried. You yeah. know, I think, uh, it and just made me think of my relationship with my like crying. Is, is, I mean, yeah, like... yeah. I mean, I, yeah, yeah. And and I, and I don't cry, I don't cry in many films, um, yeah. but yeah, it, it, I mean, it and and it's so big. It's so big. You know, the themes that you talk. I, I can't think of many other films that that kind of achieve that. So I think I think you're right. I think yeah. you're right. And I think certain people, you know. Ridley Scott's one of those they just see the world in a different way and I um you know I wasn't like you Brian I could I never I never had the ambition to be a film director you know I knew I knew that I didn't have that in me I knew I knew that that was beyond me um but I knew I could I knew I could do something really well it just wasn't at that it wasn't being a film director requires so much energy, so much personal investment. And um, uh, I kind of, I love to be a part of it in, in a particular way, but I couldn't, I don't, I don't think I have that in me. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, and I admire it from afar and I love being around that creative genius. I do. I really do. Um, and, and learning from them all the time. Or, you know, constantly. There, there's a reason they are producing what they're doing at such a scale. It's you know, there is, there is something special about about them. You yeah. Know, there is, there's, there's something. There's this incredible focus and energy that that they have. That I, I, um, yeah, I, 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 I get so much from. Yeah. I, I even imagine, you know, with Aglet, um, and what I'm doing now is like, I, you know, my, my first real sort of support for it was like i i i looked at it as as like uh the fourth part in a in a movie series you know because i was thinking of it you know the matrix you have a bunch of people trying to escape a simulation yeah. to get back to the real world and then you've got um you know uh let's say avatar which yeah. is here is sort of the real world, you know, it sucks. He can't walk, you know, he was, he was injured in the war or whatever. Now he can plug into a kind of simulation and then sort of live out uh, kind of a, a fantasy in many ways. So he, escaping reality for simulation. And then you have the third, third part of that series, which is Ready Player One, which is similar story, right? The world sucks. It's a dystopia, ecological disaster. We all live in these stacks. And now here's this head-mounted display through which we can escape into this other world um, and, and sort of live in this new space where we can be different people if we want. I can be a, you know, Gumby or Kermit the Frog or whatever. I could be Jim Henson if I wanted. Like, here's this whole other space. So it's an escape. And in each of those films, you have this ju juxtaposition of like the real world and then like the, a fake world kind of. And why I view this as sort of the progression into the fourth movie in that series is like now it's just the same thing. You know, Ready Player One is you're jumping back and forth between, and then even like at the end, there's that moment of like, hey, only on Thursdays or whatever, like we'll get back to the real world or whatever it is. But like, there's that back and forth and there's, it's always two different worlds. And why for me, Aglet is like my director, <laughs> Uh, cause I noticed you, you also have creative director in your, <clears throat> in your title and, uh, only just, oh, okay. It's a new, it's new. Gotcha. No, 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 uh, oh. no. So, so, I mean, I, historically, yes. Um, 
historically yes but uh i'm 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 taking on less and less of that role i'd 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 love to the company's got to a size now where um where i'm not i'm just i'm just not wanting to take credit for some of the wonderful work my creative directors do just to just to put that out there so they don't kill me after this interview right well that's what i mean that's where i was going with it is like this i this because you said like i don't have that and I'm, i'm just curious like i'm always thinking of founders and entrepreneurs um as some as it, it actually is quite similar to well I, with the creative director part like i've always wondered in one of my last jobs that like my actually my first job where i you know wasn't wasn't my own was like somebody asked me hey what job would you want like if you were going to stay what job would you want and i was think i said i want to be the creative director um and but i was in a digital department you know like at a at a bigger company and a di- in a digital on the digital team in strategy and innovation. And it was like this, this phrase of a creative director that's not in fashion or not in, you know, film or something seems kind of weird, but if you really think about it, why aren't there creative directors at Facebook or at um, Twitter or at, you know, these brands where it's like, you're, you have that, that what Ridley Scott has or what, you know, uh, maybe Nolan has, which is seeing and imagining in such a compelling and robust way, a future, a possible future. And then kind of being able to muster the, the resources, the technology, the people, um, the timing of it all and like orchestrating an entire kind of product that closes the gap between the, the vision of it and like the, the kind of the, the 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 product the promise and the product yeah closing i guess i guess you're talking about a title change for um a ceo i mean exactly yeah i mean that's that because that's that's how i look at what i do at aglet is like i even have that it's like i'm actually the creative director um well you're in charge so you can change your title if you want yeah i mean i i have thrown that into the kind of randomly threw it into the title it's just sort of it's just kind of there um there is a reason behind it um but I, I guess it, what I was trying to get at is like that, that it, that Ridley Scott, that Nolan, Catherine Bigelow, that's seeing the world differently. Like, what, you know, what is that? I always tell this joke of the, the wheelbarrow joke of the guy who's pushes the wheelbarrow around and picks up kind of uh, random bits on the field. And then when he leaves, he, there's these two guys that always check the wheelbarrow to see if he's stolen anything. And it turns out like the whole time he's just stealing wheelbarrows. Um, so it's like that ability to be pre-algorithmic almost. Yeah. You know? I wonder, so is your question, can you pre-engineer that? Can, can, that, think, can that ability be created? I think uh, the question is more like, what is it? What, what is it that like, what does Christopher Nolan have? Like seeing things differently? Like, what are they? I think they're very self-aware. Yeah. I think they're super self-aware. I think they... This, this is my interpretation and they would probably all shoot me down in flames. But um, my, my view is they're very aware of how they are influenced. Mm. They're very aware of how the masses see things. And then I think they probably introduce things into their lives, into their, um, 
routines that take them off the normal path. So, I mean, you know, Ridley was fantastic at this. Whenever he would breathe something into us, it, it was never, he was never referencing things that might just make us iterative on what we would do. He would take us off at some completely random tangent, take us off to a piece of fine art that had inspired him or a piece of contemporary dance or just, just, just materials and things in nature. And, um, and, you know, you kind of start from this place of, well, I can't, I can't copy anything if I'm starting from here, because this is somewhere else altogether. You know, it's not like he's point, put you in the same place that you always would be in and then put you in a slightly different direction so that it's just a, an evolution of something else. He's gone, no, 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 forget about over there. There's this place right over here. Come and have a look at this place right over here. Right now you can start moving. It's like, oh, wow. You know, um, Denis did the same thing on Blade Runner, he, you know, and and we had to just relook at the tool set that we were using to, you know, completely shift the way that we creatively worked. And um, hmm. you know, Catherine on Zero Dark Thirty would would put us in touch with the CIA and and have, you know, completely weird external influences on the project. Um, they all think that way. They're all they're, they're thinking as much about the story of making as they are about the story they're making. Mm -hmm. um, so so they're constantly questioning the whole relationship to the work. Yeah. Um, and mm -hmm. and and seeing how they can shift that and pull it around so that everyone gives them some. You know, and we're talking hundreds of people. But how do you how do you influence that organization? So that it gives gives out a result that has never been seen before, yeah, or is different enough that it really stands out and, and feels iconic and has has some cultural significance in its own right. And I think maybe that's what Kubrick did better than anyone, as he mm. really, you know, changed the way that people did the work, right? Um, and, I, and I think that's it. And when we think about organisations, and we think about you know one of the biggest things you can do in a company is that cultural shift, you know, it's really kind of helping people think differently. They're, the, they're you know, mm. they do things their way outside in the real world, but when they come into this building or when they come to work with us, this is, this is how things change. This is how it's all shifted. And, and it might feel a bit uncomfortable. It often does feel really uncomfortable. And then, you know, you're in the right place. It's like, okay, okay. This is odd. I don't, I'm, this doesn't feel familiar at all. There's something I don't quite like about this. It's kind of, well, okay, maybe we should sit with this for a moment because it's probably going to lead to something very, very different. Yeah. I'm just starting to see a lot of overlaps between <clears throat> what I'm what I'm doing, you know, not only in ra like raising capital to to make that, you know, that vision a reality, bringing on the most talented people that I can to, to help me build that, um, you know, hiring, uh, obviously then, um, and... Um, you know, the, like the actual product itself that we are building, all these different kinds of technology. So when you look at like a startup founder in the technology space, whether that's building a game or just building a software product, I'm just starting to see a lot of similarities in like, you know, the entertainment industry, like the actual business of it, but then also the, like a director or a, you know, an executive producer. And you start seeing all these like, um, um, I don't know, just all these, all these weird parallels. And then, cause someone had asked me recently, like, well, you have like a really interesting background. You, you know, you have advanced degrees in philosophy, but you also, 
wanted to do, you know, film and make movies. And now you're doing this weird thing. What in the world does like philosophy and film have to do with what you're building? Like, I don't, what are, and I was like, everything. I was like, are you serious? It has like everything to do with it. Like yeah. how you just outlined, like how those people, cause you said it's as much about the making. What do you say? It's so much about the, I don't know. We're gonna to have to play that back because it 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 sounded so good at the time, I, I, but I don't think I can repeat it. Yeah, I think it was. It, it's basically they they have this schizophrenic way of doing it. It's like how I make the story and also the story. You have to be able to think about those at the same time, um, and 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 then what you had said was you know this ability to um, to be self-aware and then also be aware of your time and like sort of like how the masses are seeing things. And, and for me, really, that is like having a robust theory of human nature yeah. and thinking about thinking, thinking about behavior, thinking about those things, but that's essentially philosophy. Um, and I think if you look at most tech founders, you'll see that I think most of the really successful ones that are maybe more B to C business to consumer, most of them, at least the iconic ones, had some kind of a background or a very profound interest in the humanities. Um, you know, Steve Jobs being an example, um, you know, I think Zuckerberg minored in psychology, Stuart Butterfield, uh, the uh, CEO at, at, at uh, Slack had a degree in philosophy. Peter Thiel did a degree in philosophy. Reed Hoffman, a degree in philosophy. And so you start to see that that having that seeing things differently is actually the the secret sauce. You know, is that question Peter Thiel asked, like, what's the one thing you believe to be true that basically everybody would disagree with you on? And are you like insanely focused and fanatical about making that a reality and being able to bring people along with you on the journey is you know, what's your secret essentially, right? I've just been yeah. thinking about this a lot lately. Yeah, um, I think understanding human behavior and mass human behavior is a big signifier of where those people go, do, do, you know, have success. Yeah. And that's a film director or a company owner or, you know, yeah, anyone that's that's working with that. It's, um, uh, and hopefully, I mean, it doesn't always come through, but hopefully, you know, and we talk about this word a lot at the moment everywhere. I think we're all talking about it because of COVID, but, but empathy, you know, um, is really about understanding others as best as you can so that you can, you can make something relevant for everyone and, and instigate change. Um, but without, but without that understanding and empathy, I'm, I don't know how that happens. Yeah. No. Speaking of what to do next, um, what are you, uh, I know it's probably impossible to, actually say anything about what you guys are doing next at Territory, given uh, the probably uh, copious NDAs that you guys signed. Um, but can you, is there anything you can share about what you guys have in the pipeline that whether it's, I'm well, sure I'm there's there. some films, but are there series games, like any brands you're working with that we should be yeah. out for? We've been, we've been working with some great games. We've been working with some really cool games. Um, you know, CD projects on cyberpunk. We had a small involvement on that and that, you know, can't wait for that great title to be involved with um i think it's on imdb but then public knowledge but we've been work we worked on june um mm. and uh what else can i say and the new bond film when that comes out 
Um, that was um, just delayed, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm. <laughs> Let's not talk about that. <laughs> um, uh, we've we've had a really good run of amazing films and directors, actually, just yeah. great creative collaborators to work with. Um, and and we're working with some really just just some fantastic brands um, mm. in the automotive space, in the tech space. Just trying to think of somebody that I might be able to mention. Um, it's tricky actually because so much of the work that we do is about future, you know, and yeah. strategic future yeah. that that it it becomes tricky to talk about. But we're doing a lot of work with Netflix, a lot of work with Apple, um, and and they've both got some fantastic some fantastic shows coming through on their slates. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, one of the highlights for me most recently, or well, not that recent, but was working on Black Mirror. Um, because it gets referenced back to me whenever I'm going to these tech companies and working with them, it's it's often it's often referenced to me. So to <laughs> add some involvement in that show is 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 satisfying. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I think I can mention it. So we just we've just been working with David Fincher on Mank, um, mm. and that's been you know career highlight. I think I won't, haven't been directly working with him. The team have. Um, which I'm insanely jealous of. They they kind of went over to LA and worked directly with him, and and oh, wow. um, and it's and it's a special show because it's you know it's it it's about Citizen Kane and 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 the writer and everything else. So um, so that's pretty special. That's pretty special. I'm looking forward to that coming out. Um, and and it talks about you know really our interest in world building more broadly beyond technology. Mm. Um, is kind of world building in a more pure sense for, for feature films. Um, so that's really exciting for us. It's, it's slightly outside of our comfort zone or it was outside of our comfort zone and now it's something that we want to be doing lots, lots more of. Um, but yeah, I think, I think the, the exciting things for us are seeing real-time technologies coming through and how that's connecting up with all the different things that we're doing. You know, mm. um, we're doing lots of experiential stuff and it's, I thought COVID was going to affect... Um, live events more than it has done for us but actually we still have live projects big live projects that are in that space and we're doing a lot of stuff with real-time technologies and haptics Mm -hmm. the AR, holograms um, but making it all real world which is really exciting you know all the stuff that we fantasize about in film with our experiential work we get to have a go at trying to make it real um, and that's really cool. That's really cool. Wait a minute. Lot. Wait a minute. It sounds like you're using film to fund your pet projects. Yeah, I mean, it goes in all directions. It goes in all directions. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, you know, we really can't complain. The projects that we have at the moment are just—we've just finished working on uh, a new Spider-Man computer game and a new Avengers computer game. And you the know, PS5 kind of, one. Sorry, the PS5 one, the Miles yeah. Morales one. Nice. Yeah. Um, I think I'm allowed to talk about that. I'll check later. Um, and yeah, you know, it's just just wonderful crossovers. It's just it's it, it's um, you kind of pinch yourself sometimes. Um, and we and we do and we do some less. We often take on projects that um, I guess to the outside world feel less sexy, but actually they're just as sexy because they're a technological challenge or a creative challenge. That you know, how do you make this quite um, what looks on the front of it quite a quite a technical story you know I, I love these challenges where it's a complex scientific or technical story how do you make that um, digestible for a mainstream audience and, and exciting 
and interesting. And that's kind of what we do in films, you know. We take something quite technical and we need to, well, make it a bit Hollywood or make it a bit fun and sexy, but also it still needs to tell a story. Um, and it's surprising how much of the real world needs that. You know, we've got something that we consider quite dry or data-driven. How do we bring that alive and, and, and get some, you know, not entertainment, I think it's probably pushing it too far, but def- definitely create some intrigue and interest. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of really worthwhile causes that need that, you know, a lot of um, <clears throat> charities and global organisations that kind of need to bring data to life in really fascinating ways. And, and they, they can be just as rewarding as the feature film projects um, and, and, and often more challenging. You know, it's quite, it's quite challenging there to kind of um, bring that alive for people. That's worth yeah. it. You know. Speaking of that, you mentioned that you're working with um, Apple and some stuff. I'm, I'm assuming that is uh, from like a production Apple original perspective. Um, yes, it is. Yeah. However, yeah. you and I um, had talked about, um, <clears throat> I even think we came up with a phrase for it. We called it the interface revolution. Mm-hmm. We, were, we were talking about how, you know, okay, once we go into this more spatial direction and, um, you know, uh, right now you guys are designing I mean, you're doing more than this, but you're designing interfaces that appear on a two-dimensional screen Mm. in a film. But there's no reason why you guys could not design interfaces that appear in front of me um, enabled by, you know, AR glasses or something like that. And when you look at what Apple's doing and where they're going, they just released, you know, the Apple Clips. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this, but, you know, like the, basically it's like this new QR code that they're releasing. Um, and now, again, imagine a future scenario in which I do have a pair of Apple AR glasses on, you know, with the LiDAR sensor, with the camera. And now, like, literally anywhere that I look, there could be, instead of downloading an app, I look at something, my, my glasses activate an interface where I can now, you know, basically uh, make, a, make a selection, whether that's shopping, whether that's watch a watch a, a clip whether that's whatever is there are you guys thinking about that space at all as well or are any maybe maybe early stages of like taking it out of because because at the very beginning close the circle i guess and then we can conclude you had said the boundaries of the screen um and so <clears throat> bringing virtual digital together through some of these new technologies allows you to kind of eliminate in many ways or at least make that boundary invisible um, have you guys thought at all about, you know, more about that interface revolution and how maybe it's not only in the film, but actually in, in the environment, like in reality that these inter that you could design these interfaces for. Oh, completely. And, and, and at all sorts of different levels. So, you know, take it at, at its simplest form, you know, it's AR through a mobile, whether that be through Facebook or something else, but, you know, and that's, that's exciting because, that's in the hands of millions, you know, that's accessible, but you know, we've, we've worked on, we worked on a surgical AR app for um, the HoloLens um, called Mediviz. And that was exploring, you know, some quite serious applications of three-dimensional X-ray overlaid in surgery. Um, and, you know, what do the, what does the user interface look like in, in that sense? And then, and then I get into NDA territory, but, you know, yeah. it's safe to say that we're working with all brands around understanding 
how their brand or how they might make the most of opportunities in, in, in spatial visioning. Mm. Um, because that frameless experience is not far away. It is really not far away. And um, it's, there's quite a lot of work to be done. In mm. fact, there's a, there's a huge amount of work to be done to consider um, how, how, how we're all relevant in that space. Um, it's, yeah, I mean, I, I, can't, I can't say it strongly <laughs> enough. I cannot say it strongly enough. It's um, it is absolutely huge, and it you know it's more than it's more than Pokemon Go, people. It's uh, yeah. Uh, it's I mean yeah, and I'm sure gaming you know gaming will be one of those first those first views to kind of pick it up. But um, you know, I think the gaming community has always been ahead of everyone else anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. Um, I think I think it's just it. I hope Apple do it, or somebody's got to do it. Some, some, somebody has to deliver this, yeah. um, and and I'm and I'm pretty sure there's going to be three or four people that kind of have a really close shot at it um, in the next few years. Yeah, I mean, it seems like we are getting to a point in in the technology space that's not dissimilar to uh, the film industry, but also not dissimilar to um, you know, like science where it used to be you could be, you know, Newton or Einstein hanging out somewhere at a, you know, as a patent clerk or, you know, walking along in Cambridge and, and write, you write a paper or four papers and you completely disrupt the worldview of science, you know, and then that leads to various things. Whereas now we're at a point where, you know, it's, it's you and a team of, you know, 10,000 people with billions and billions of dollars on a hadron collider or, you know, proton accelerator or whatever, or a particle accelerator. And so, you, you know, we're just at that point where it's like the scale now to have impact is so massive. And as a result, the, the amount of capital required to like make a dent um, is so big. I mean, there will always be kind of the, the outlier small independence, but it, it seems, you know, the consolidation that happens across all these places where, it, it, even being a founder becomes a kind of acquisition play where it's like, oh, okay, how do we build part of this future so that we then just sell it to, you know, Apple or Google or, you know, Facebook or whomever. And it's kind of weird a little bit because it's it is weird because it feels like it's predetermined and there's a rule book for all this stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and kind of going back to where the directors work and the, the space that they play in, I think you can create some unfair advantages for yourself by uh, stepping outside of the predetermined structures that are there. Yeah, um, I think that's you know that's that's how you create some unfair advantage for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, that 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 that's been my experience at least. You know, when I when I, I forget, there's a famous advertising creative that says, you know. Um, if everyone else is zigging, you've got a zag, you know, it's, and it's so true. It's so true. Look at, look at, look at the herd mentality and then kind of get ahead of it or, you know, go in the other direction. Um, I think that's, that's, that's key to uh, anyone, you know, wanting to grow beyond, beyond organic in their business. Marty Neumeyer <laughs> is the name, I think. That rings a bell. Yeah, I think that's it. Um, all right, man. Well, we covered a lot of, uh, well, 
bad. This was not an intended pun, but a lot of, a lot of territory. Um, appreciate your time. Uh, can't wait to see what you guys do next. And I'm, I know you've got some very cool stuff out and, um, and coming out and always value uh, the time when we connect and, and, uh, and jam and rap a bit about this stuff. So. Yeah. Really fun, Ryan. Really fun. And best of luck with Aglet. I'm really excited to see how that evolves. Yeah. Well, hopefully, I mean, I've, going from Alipo, I mean, I've been trying desperately uh, to, uh, to, to work with you guys. Uh, so, you know, we're going to have some avatars soon in the game. So maybe, maybe it's there's fun. a, Maybe there, maybe there's an NDA to sign. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks cool. for having me. All right, man. Cheers. Later. Bye.